This is The Political Scene, and I'm David Remnick. Donald Trump's contempt for democracy is a matter of fact, an impulse registered again and again throughout his presidency and its aftermath. As so many, including those in his circle, warned, he would never accept the legitimacy of Biden's election. And of course, he provoked an insurrection attempting to stop that election, and he has faced no consequences for it so far. There was some buzzing after the midterm elections that Trump's influence on the GOP had finally burned out. But the fact is that he's running for president and he leads the Republican field. In 2018, at the midpoint of the Trump presidency, the journalist and historian John Meacham wrote a book called The Soul of America, and it warned of the gravity of Trump's threat to democracy. Now, this was hardly a unique point of view, but Meacham's particular way of putting things, steeped in a kind of critical reverence for American history, hit home with one reader in particular, Joe Biden. And in the years since, Meacham became an informal advisor to Biden, helping him with the last State of the Union address and other speeches. John Meacham's books include biographies of Jefferson, Jackson, George H.W. Bush, John Lewis, and Abraham Lincoln. We spoke last week. John, the press spends a huge amount of time obsessing about the odds, the mood, the events of the day. Let's talk about the stakes. As we witness the renewed and unending tragedy of Donald Trump, his candidacy, his battles with the law from New York to Georgia to D.C., what is at stake now in this latest chapter? What's at stake is whether America now has 47 or 48 percent of the likely electorate to show up in 2024 who are more likely than not to vote for an overtly autocratic figure for president of the United States, someone who has explicitly said that the rule of law should not apply to him. The, the, the results of free and fair elections should not be obeyed if he loses them. The district attorney of New York, under the auspices and direction of the Department of Injustice in Washington, D.C., was investigating me for something that is not a crime, not a misdemeanor, not an affair. Having a, a dictatorial figure is not new, either in human experience or American history. What is new is that so many people are willing to suspend their better judgment to support him. Did we make a mistake? Did many people not make a mistake thinking that with the results of the last election and then the spectacle of January 6th, that this somehow, this impulse of authoritarianism would begin to recede and maybe even recede fairly rapidly. Was that not a gigantic illusion? That's a good way to put it. It was a gigantic illusion, and it's a persistent one. Um, I am friends with principled Republicans who have said to me for going on eight years now, since 2015, that Trump was going to fade, that it wouldn't work, that his hour either A, would not come, or B, would pass. 
And I now refer to this overly glibly as the Republican Brigadoon fantasy, that there is this world where Trump just disappears and that world's going to come back and reassert itself. And the only problem with that fantasy is that it is fact-free. And it is a trope that every election is more important than any other election. But this is not 1976. Uh, This isn't 1980. This isn't a difference of degree, which is what presidential elections tend to be. Partisans don't believe that, but, but I believe that. It's a difference of kind. I, but when we're assessing where Donald Trump came from, I think a lot of people would argue that some of the origins come from people that you have studied and have admired, whether it's the Lee Atwater side of the George H.W. Bush campaign or Ronald Reagan speaking for states' rights in Mississippi, that elements of Trumpism have been present in the Republican Party in the establishment for a very long time. So when you're assessing where Trumpism came from, um, how do you begin to analyze the roots of it? I am more skeptical of the uh, long-term Republican complicity uh, in, in Trumpism for this reason. Trumpism was not inevitable unless you go back to an elemental argument about human nature, which is that power is all. And I simply don't believe that the Republican figures that are kind of corralled up uh, in this particular critique would have acted that way. Uh, I don't think Ronald Reagan would have done it. Uh, Richard Nixon broke the law, but then he followed the law. Uh, Nixon, in the end, had a sense of shame. And we're not there. Now, now John, you're, you're, speaking of stakes, your involvement, your personal involvement in the stakes have, have shifted. You had yep. a long and storied career as a journalism. Storied. Journalism, I like that. I'm you, storied. That's what we say in sports, <laughs> the storied fullback. And... You more fully shifted to being a historian. You've written some remarkable and best-selling biographies, presidential biographies. The most recent is And There Was Light about Lincoln. And yet you also are getting more and more involved or have been involved, particularly with Joe Biden as a kind of uh, outside advisor, particularly on speeches. And I think it would be good to know what your association with Joe Biden is, how it began, and where it got to, uh, how far it goes or how far it doesn't go. Um, Fifteen years ago, uh, I wrote a book called American Gospel, and Joe Biden was making, at that point, his second run for president. Uh, it lasted, I think, about 30 minutes, but he read that book, and after he was done uh, with the campaign or toward the end of his campaign, he actually took me aside uh, at an event and showed me some laminated cards he had in his pocket that had quotations from the book. Now, 
As you know, when writers are shown their own words, we tend to approve of the taste and wisdom <laughs> of the person who found those words. Um, you were flattered. Absolutely, of course. Yeah. Uh, so, 2017, uh uh, Vice President Biden, former Vice President Biden, had written uh, the book about the loss of his son, Bo. And we did a book event here in Nashville. Uh, I interviewed him for a crowd. And so uh, we became friendly. Um, but my my view of engagement, I spoke to the Democratic Convention at his uh, request um, and I have helped with uh, the drafting of, of, of speeches, um, which I hate talking about because if you're going to serve in that way, uh, you sh- shouldn't talk about it. But again, the, the- did, did, did any of this make you feel uncomfortable? Because for journalists, you could be, you know, for somebody or against somebody editorially uh, in, in the obvious way, but to be writing speeches to be speaking at a con- political convention, et cetera, that's another matter, no? Did, did you feel... It is a matter. It is another matter. It? No, but I'm not a journalist anymore. Um, I'm a biographer. I'm a professor. Um, and I believe firmly that um, to whom much is given, much is expected. I don't want to profit from this. I see this as an act of citizenship. And... I believe that Trumpism is a fundamental threat to the things that we have long held dear. And so I want, if I can be of help in uh, articulating a vision of the country that puts the declaration, that puts the pursuit of justice, that puts um, the best of the country front and center, then I want to do that. Many books are written about Abraham Lincoln. Many, many, many biographies. In fact, there are so many books written about Lincoln that I believe every year there's a, an award given to the best book about Abraham yeah. Lincoln. Your book um, is at once a biography, but I also think it resonates very, very deliberately, if not overtly, with the present moment. Was that the impetus for the book, and how does it resonate to you? In many ways, it was. the. So I thought that our current moment was like 1933 or 1968, where there were proto-fascist forces. Uh, there was a sense that democracy had run out its string, and that enough conscientious effort went into keeping democracy alive. I am increasingly concerned, however, having made that argument, that this is the 1850s, that in fact there are competing visions of reality itself. And we are going to fight like hell against the tyrannical Democrats and any Republicans who do deals with them. It will be your peril if you underestimate this movement again. It was not settled by a congressional debate. 
It was not settled by a Brookings seminar. It was not settled through the ordinary protocols of politics. It was settled by the sword, by the Civil War, by the death of what demographers now believe might have been 750,000 Americans. And what I wanted to explore, and Lincoln rests at the center of this question, is why did Abraham Lincoln, why did he do what he did? Because he was a politician. Abraham Lincoln, for all of his failings, fundamentally believed that slavery was wrong and could not be expanded. And so why? Why did he think that? He thought it and acted on it because his conscience told him so. Lincoln put the moral convictions of anti-slavery at the center of his undertaking. And he didn't have to. I think what you're saying by inference is that in no small, no small measure that the burden on Joe Biden and Joe Biden's candidacy, presumably for re-election, is of that historical weight. And, and if he does not succeed, um, then we don't know what the consequences could be. People were mocking about the recent book by Barbara Walter about the possibility of civil war in this country, but you seem to be inviting that potential comparison. So that's one thing. The other thing is, is Joe Biden up to it? Abraham Lincoln's capacities, his eloquence, uh, was extraordinary by any measure. Joe Biden is uh, an older guy uh, whose eloquence is, is not Lincoln-esque. Uh, and he also has a lot of other things on his plate, <laughs> including a land war in Europe um, and any number of other issues impinging on him to say nothing about the fate of the planet itself. Is Joe Biden up to defeating Donald Trump again, and at the same time, writing this country? The question, I believe, is as much, are we up to it as President Biden? President Biden is not, no American president is Zeus-like. And so I think it's up to 51% of us or more to recognize what a path what what path we should take and take it and so i wouldn't put the whole uh, onus on any single person including lincoln uh, the union army had a lot to do with this black americans had a lot to do with this um i think the person at the top matters enormously obviously um but this is up to all of us. Do you think Ron DeSantis represents Trumpism or some other kind of republicanism? I'm not an early investor in the Ron DeSantis conventional wisdom. Um, I think that I think the Trump grip on that base of folks is so strong that it's just going to be – it's very hard for me to see how he doesn't win the nomination. And I know, again what, – what, what role will indictment, legal indictment play in that? It could help. I mean, that's, the, that's the world we're in, right? 
is that indictment in Georgia, indictment in Washington, indictment in New York. Any of them could help. You're saying? I think so. I mean, I don't. We're we're in genuine. We're in uncharted territory. But to have an indicted former president seeking reelection with a huge chunk of a formerly functional opposition political party in the United States is yes is is uh, is unprecedented what is not unprecedented is the case that has to be made to defeat him and that is a case for a constitutional order informed by a journey toward recognizing the promise of human equality that was articulated, if not realized, at the beginning of the adventure. And the great question for my Republican friends is, do you have the ability, do you have the capacity to vote for the other party in order to preserve the experiment? I don't have a partisan enough brain to even think that's a hard call. I have voted for Republican presidential candidates. Um, I am flummoxed to some extent at the durability of partisan feeling. Your colleagues, Susan Glasser and Peter Baker, have reported that James Addison Baker III voted for Donald Trump twice. I mean, isn't that outrageous to your ear? Yes, and I don't understand it. A man who gave much, a, a huge chunk of his life to a constitutional experiment, to preserving America's role in the world, voted for the nominee of his party, this, no matter who the nominee was. And I just don't understand it. But then what gives you, what gives you the notion that, you know, that somehow <laughs> that, that this fever will break? The fever only breaks if they lose. Let's be very clear here. The only way that Trumpism recedes from its power, and it's, you're never getting rid of it, right? But it can be contained. My view is it is only contained if they keep losing. And that means that democracy, American democracy, is on <laughs> is on the edge at all times and that we didn't recognize the, it of course it's on the edge at all times of course it is a it's fundamentally a human enterprise we can't outsource this i'm not talking about this is this is important to me david i'm not arguing that there is a mythical moment that there is a, a moment at gettysburg on the farm with Eisenhower, where if we could just beam ourselves back there, everything everything was great and everything will be great again. It is a, it is a perennial struggle. It is a perennial battle, I have argued, between our worst instincts and the better angels of our nature, to use Lincoln's phrase. And the remarkable thing about the American experiment is that after much blood, much strife, much chaos, those better angels have just managed to eke out a provisional victory. 
And I think that's the struggle we're in now. John Meacham, thanks so much. Thank you. John Meacham is a recovering journalist and a presidential historian. He's also a winner of the Pulitzer Prize. His book about Abraham Lincoln from last year is called And There Was Light. 